I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. My guest today is Lynn Barrett, an author, speaker, retreat leader, and survivor of early childhood trauma. Diagnosed in 1992 with multiple personality disorder, now known as Dissociative Identity Disorder, or DID, she endured several decades of inner chaos and deep pain. Even so, most of the time, she was able to maintain a professional life as an elementary school teacher and principal, as well as persevere to a satisfactory outcome with her personal and family life. Crediting her therapist, Sonia Nowak, with guiding her to health and wholeness and to close friends for emotional support, Lynn recently published a memoir entitled Crazy about her intense psychological journey. So Lynn, it's an honor to welcome you to Delving In. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So I guess a, a good first question is, how did you come to the decision to write the book? So I can imagine, on the one hand, it's very exciting to write such a book. It's also such a daunting topic in general and such a daunting, I guess, a prospect to um, self-disclose to that extent. That's such a good question, Stuart, and thank you for asking me this. I felt as if my life was very bizarre in some ways, and yet I had come to um, such a place of uh, integration and peace that somehow it seemed to me that this story needs to be told. At least my version of this story. There are people everywhere with dissociative identity disorder who have their own stories that may be similar to mine or not similar to mine. But it was a story that I knew nothing about before I was hit between the eyes uh, with decompensation. So the idea of writing a book was not something I could even begin to get my mind around when I was in the middle of um, this deep pain and chaos for uh, about 20 years. But when I came to a place of integration, actually I waited 20 more years <laughs> before I wrote my memoir. And I, I, I don't know exactly why I waited so many years, but I think I needed distance. Well, first of all, I needed to learn how to live as a unified person. And so that in itself, it took more time from my inner world. But I also just needed to have some, some space from the experience. And I think giving myself space from that part of my life enabled me to write a book um, that had some objectivity uh, as well as deep intimacy and that hopefully is meaningful not only to people with dissociative identity disorder and their therapists and their loved ones, but maybe even some people in the general public who would like to know more about DID. And I would imagine that uh, memoirs of DID are not that common. I mean, there are some, and there are certainly some written by therapists, but a, a memoir is, is a bit different. There is a collection of writing about DID, and maybe what's unique about mine is that I did give myself that 20-year space, so I was not in the midst of the pain when I was doing the writing. Um, but we do have people right now who are working on memoirs, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, later in the interview uh, in our Dissociative Writers Group 
uh, that I started uh, sort of as a result of, of this memoir. So I think there's a lot of people who have stories to tell, and hopefully mine help will help to spur other people with a dissociative disorder to start to tell their story too, because the world has a lot of misinformation about dissociative identity disorder. And the more we put out accurate stories, the more we can unstigmatize the disorder and help the people who are suffering from this condition to um, actually be able to live full lives. And as a, f- a former educator and principal, and you have the skill set to really help uh, kind of lead, uh, I don't know if one of you want to use the word movement, but uh, <laughs> certainly uh, creating a, f- a forum for people sharing their, their lives and, and sharing support with each other. Well, that's an interesting comment because I was asked to write uh, <clears throat> for other writers about what it's like to start a, a writer's workshop, which is what I did. And yeah, I do have the skill set of having attended writer's workshops and having taught writers workshops and classes to be able to gather in uh, folks with dissociative disorders and to encourage them and provide them with support as they're doing their own writing. Some of which is memoir and some of which is uh, poetry. There's a, a lot of poetry is a wonderful medium for expressing uh, the experience of what one is uh, mm-hmm. going through. Now, the word dissociative or dissociation, that's uh, a key word, which I think uh, for members of our uh, listenership that uh, don't know that word, I think it's really be important to, to tease that out. So what's meant by that word? Uh, that's another really good question. Um, and I usually start by explaining to people that dissociation is really a natural body-mind function, that we all dissociate uh, on occasion. The mind and the body Uh, separate temporarily for whatever reason. So uh, if you are sitting in a lecture hall with a really boring professor (laughs) and but you're sitting by the window and you're watching children play soccer outside your window, uh, you may your mind may leave that lecture hall and go out into the yard with the kids uh, and just experience that. And you may even forget that you're in the hall until your professor calls you back uh, uh, by asking you a question and then you have to uh, sort of reorient yourself. Well, that's a very basic form of body-mind separation, of dissociation. But because the body and the mind separate temporarily, dissociation has a protective function as well. And so that uh, soldiers who see battle will often dissociate on the battlefield and then come home and continue to sort of split apart uh, now and then, uh, which can be very disorienting and is a part of the uh, PTSD diagnosis because it's a way of protecting the the mind from the uh, intense experience that the body is experiencing. Women who have been raped will dissociate during the act of rape and also sometimes when they return into society because the experience of dissociation protected them from the full impact of the rape in the moment. But dissociation after the um, event that causes it can create its own problems in, in the person who is dissociating. So... What's the difference between dissociation in a soldier and dissociation in a woman who has been raped and dissociation in a small child who has been chronically 
or is being chronically uh, traumatized or abused. So according to the theory of structural dissociation, the mind of a child is still developing up until the age of somewhere between 6 and 12. And so prior to the time that the mind is fully developed, it, it is very flexible. And if a child is experiencing trauma over and over again, it will sort of partition out those experiences uh, into different parts. And if this happens often enough and frequently enough, those parts will, I, I say, use the word solidify, but that's probably not a good word because it isn't solid, but it may, it feels solid in the, in the small child. The small child doesn't know they're doing this. And so there is amnesia between the different parts. Uh, one part can go out and, and, and love and depend upon the caregivers who are caring for them and hurting them without knowing about the hurt because another part of the child holds the abuse or the memory or the emotion or the skill set uh, that helps them survive. And so when this happens over and over again, the child grows naturally to have different parts uh, that carry on different functions or experience different emotions. Yeah, so maybe another way of putting that is this uh, uh, a development of a compartmentalization of self. Yes. Uh, that I think most of us have some, to some degree, but yes. just without the amnesia that follows. So for instance, we, we might have a compartmentalized professional life where we're able to sort of put aside uh, stressful things that are happening at home. We sort of, sort of just bracket it off uh, and then go about our business when we're doing our professional life. I also wanted to mention that maybe another way of looking at uh, dissociation is that it's a, kind of a diversion of attention hmm. away from something that's upsetting towards something else. So daydreaming during a boring class would be a kind of a trivial example. But let's say on the battlefield, uh, for anyone who's seen Saving Private Ryan, mm -hmm. that, that, that uh, it's a very difficult movie to watch, but right. in the opening scenes at Normandy Beach, you can see the, uh, the Tom Hanks character, they, they slow down the motion and they, you hear the sound of his, the blood and his, his going past his ears and, and he's sort of there but not there. And, and at the extreme, he, you're not able to function because you're so absent from the actual exactly. situation. And then he kind of snaps out of it and he realizes he has to move away from that spot. Yes, yes. That's a great way of putting it. I think that's absolutely right. And I also think that we do all compartmentalized to some extent. We all have different parts. The difference between the different parts that all of us have and the parts of someone with dissociative identity disorder is these were created through chronic abuse and there is that amnesic wall which you mentioned between them. So today, I, I, I have different parts today as an integrated person. Um, that aren't always related to the very active parts that I had as um, a person with dissociative identity disorder. So mm -hmm. that's absolutely yeah. true. The other thing I wanted to mention, and I don't know if I came up with this myself or I read it somewhere, I don't remember. <laughs> I must have uh, have amnesia for that. Uh, <laughs> but that uh, the, the use of, of multiple personalities or dissociative identities as a coping strategy really reminds me of, of the kind of fantasy role-playing that a young child does, mm -hmm. 
uh, and that uh, to be able to use that as a kind of a defense to preserve the kind of vulnerable, kind-hearted parts of oneself, mm -hmm. that it takes a certain kind of talent for that kind of fantasy play. So you have to actually have above average uh, abilities in that area. Otherwise, I think other, other coping strategies that maybe even worse would occur. That not only creating characters, but identifying so fully with them that you become this other character. You become them. Right. You become them. Yeah. Yes. Um, y yes, I, I, I think that it is a very creative coping strategy. And I can see that today uh, in other people that I know with dissociative identity disorder who are often brilliant people. Mm -hmm. who are incredibly motivated, who may be artists or musicians or writers or in some other ways use their creativity in the world. Right. That's when they are functioning. Exactly. I, have to, I have to exactly. bracket that because we, are, we, we aren't always functioning, but when we are functioning, uh, those are some of the gifts and the skills that we have. Right. And one piece of evidence for that, if, if, the, if it's really true that there's a kind of a talent for imaginative play, would be the ability to relate to young children. Hmm. And you, in fact, were an early childhood uh, yes. educator of yes. kindergarten to first grade, I think. First yes, grade? exactly. Yes. Yeah, and, and that you would have maybe a capacity to relate to that, that type of thinking. My own kids were in a, a program called Kinder Music, an after-school program. Hmm. And I was really impressed with the teacher that they were able to use the, the fantasy kind of thinking to, to help with classroom discipline. So like a, a child had brought a toy to the class and the teacher was understandably concerned that the child was going to be distracted. So she said, well, your toy here can, can sit on top of this cabinet and watch the class with us. <laughs> you know, and, and that's, you know, I think it was a perfect way to impose a kind of structure to the class, change the expectation, but without doing it in a way that would kind of emotionally rip away the toy from the yes. child. No, that's, that's a lovely story. Well, my next question, which I have to give you credit for, is in the questions that you ask at the end of your book, because you have discussion questions. <laughs> it's, it's such a good one that I thought it, it really makes sense to, to ask it early in the interview. And that's that, uh, what inner dialogues and debates did you go through in choosing the title, Crazy? Because hmm. hmm. I imagine, you know, the, whether you have multiple parts to yourself or not, <laughs> there's going to be, I think, a lot of ambivalence about, about that title. I want to say there was not a lot of personal ambivalence, but I became aware that the title could be very offensive uh, to some people. For me personally, that word <laughs> is the word that I used in my journal over and over again to describe how I felt. I felt like I was going crazy. I felt crazy. And I, I have to stop right here and say that I was not crazy. And other people with DID are not crazy, but we are responding creatively <laughs> to the crazy things that were done to us. But we feel crazy. But when I wrote my memoir, it just poured out of me. <laughs> And then I went back and I started to learn about how you write memoirs. <laughs> so, and I, and, I, and I began to get feedback from people. And I did learn that crazy was an insensitive word uh, that might be very offensive to some people. And I, I, I took polls, you know, among 
my own followers, among Facebook groups of people uh, with dissociative identity disorder to find out what they thought. And I would say maybe a third of the people expressed a little bit of concern that I would be using that word. And, and two thirds probably said, you know, that's exactly how I feel too, you know, so I think you should use the word or it's your book and your story. I went back into the, uh, the book. I, w- I actually tried to do some rewriting without using the word and it was very stilted. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very hard because it's the word that I used. And finally, my publisher said, Lynn, th- this, is, this, this is your word. This is, this is the story. And so that is what I've done. My, my dedication in the beginning is to the community of people with dissociative identity disorder who are not crazy, um, but who are using a creative coping strategy. Uh, to survive the crazy things that were done to them. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to make sure whenever I speak that I am very clear about that. We are not crazy. One of the things that 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 I think I was aware of that made me feel so crazy is that, that when, whatever crazy means, and I don't think there's anything in the DSM that's called crazy, you know. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> right? But, 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 but the idea is that if you're crazy, you don't know you're crazy, you know. But I knew I was crazy. Because we have DID, we have parts of us who are lucid and clear and know exactly what's going on and other parts that are all over the map. And so that elicits an incredibly crazy feeling inside. Well, it's it's a wonderfully loaded word. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you want a loaded word for a title, I think, because it's going to evoke all kinds of strong feelings one way or another. Love or hate. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, the, the word crazy is also used as an epithet toward people. So it has a kind of uh, connotation of an outsider's perspective on oneself, which, which you had, I think, internalized that, you know, by calling yourself crazy, you were sort of seeing yourself as others might maybe feared others who were seeing you. And so it's a very, very uh, powerful uh, word. And, and it is a pejorative word. I mean, people use it as in, in that respect, people also use it uh, as a compliment. Well, wow, that's crazy good. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's a very interesting well, and, 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 and as I felt, as I came to peace with using this word, it's, I, I'm not calling anyone crazy except myself. Right. And we can do that. We can call ourselves whatever we want to. And it is, it's how I felt. So for good or for bad, <laughs> that's the title that's, of the book. That's the title. And I just also want to mention that you are a new Las Cruces as well. So this is a live, uh, not am. live, but an in-person interview, which uh, yes. I haven't had that many chances to do that uh, recently. So uh, welcome to Las Cruces. Thank you. We're, I, it's, I, I'm really happy to be here. Well, let's talk a bit, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but about the controversies about the diagnosis. It's understandably a sensationalized diagnosis. It's the subject of books and movies, often very disturbing ones. <laughs> Yes. Uh, which probably is not helpful. Uh, but let's talk a bit about that, about the controversies about the diagnosis and also about recovered memory. And you do talk about that a little bit in the book. Uh, yeah. So I think that when I was diagnosed, was right in the middle of that movement uh, called false memory syndrome. And it was disturbing to me. In fact, I received letters in the mail from my father uh, <laughs> that were just uh, newspaper articles about false memory syndrome without any other note. Now, I had never <laughs> accused my father of anything. I want to be really clear about that. But yet I would get these in the mail and I didn't know, you know, w- with no explanation. 
And I'm not an expert on that movement. I really don't know a whole lot about it. So what I can say, mm -hmm. uh, you have to take with a little bit of a grain of salt. I've been, I've read or have been told that it developed out of, uh, from parents uh, and, and the parents therapists who had been accused of sexually abusing their children. And so there was some quasi research done on that. Even at the time that I would get these articles from my father, and in the book, I'm very clear, I say, I am not qualified to comment on this uh, in any way, but I just had to put that all aside because I, I didn't really care about, I didn't have the energy to understand the kind of research this was or the kind of the quality of the objections. I was trying to survive at the time. It was only survival on my part. And so I just put it all to the side of me and kept f focused uh, on, on survival and healing, survival and healing. And I let that whole movement do whatever it wanted to do because I, <laughs> I couldn't impact it anyway. The only thing I could impact was my own self, and that's what I and that's what I focused on. But since that time, there has been an incredible amount of uh, research on, um, uh, on 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 traumatic memory, on dissociation, on on DID. Uh, one book that I always uh, plug, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, is Bessel van der Kolk's um, "The Body Keeps the Score," and he is really probably the premier um, researcher that others are following in his footsteps. So there, there's a huge body of knowledge now around uh, how we cope with trauma, uh, and particularly as children. The reality is that none of us, including those of us who have DID, really want to believe that this kind of abuse can happen. We don't, it, it's too hard to, to comprehend, it's too hard to swallow. And so we, we, we sort of put it on the periphery of our minds uh, when we hear about it. And so I think it's all too easy to uh, jump on uh, some explanation that says, oh, the therapist is dropping the, the, the idea in, right, into this right. patient's mind. So no therapist <laughs> dropped anything to my yeah, mind. Yeah, you know? we'll, and we'll get to that. It, it, it seems to me that the the whole controversy has to do with recovered memory that memories that had been forgotten, well, presumably forgotten, and then only recovered in therapy. In other words, that there was a a memory that didn't exist as a memory until then. And the research, uh, and I think the premier person is Elizabeth Loftus, uh, who's primarily a forensic psychologist, and one of the I think her big sources of income is testifying as, as, as an expert witness about mm. how fallible a recovered sure. memories are. But I think one thing that needs to be said about that is that explicit episodic memory really only starts being formed at about age three. Very few people uh, remember anything before the age of three, presumably for neurological reasons. The, the uh, brain is not set up to have those kind of meanings. And when you talk about the body keeps score, well, memory is not just explicit episodic memory. Right. Memory also is how uh, the body is, or the mind is conditioned. And you, in a way, that's a sort of a memory, even though you don't remember it as a memory. Well, and, and, and traumatic memory is stored in the body. 
And 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 I completely agree with you that memory is very fallible, and certainly the memory of a small child, the explicit memory of a small child, is not reliable. Just like the explicit memory of an adult is not reliable. What is reliable is the traumatic memory that has been stored in the body. Which another way of putting that is that the, the way the body reacts to a particular situation can be a kind of a, a clue as to what probably happens. So right. for instance, if there's a kind of dissociation happens during sex, uh, or uh, a startle response to certain kinds of uh, stimuli, you know, that there's an assumption that there's something must have happened that reminds, reminds the person of right. something really terrible. And, and many people who have experienced trauma as children do not remember explicitly what that trauma was. And through therapy, will have flashbacks. And when I say through therapy, that doesn't mean in therapy room. But once you get into therapy, then it starts to open you up and you have, in your own time, in your own place, in your own home, you, you, you have... Uh, flashbacks of what happened, which gradually become more formed, explicit memory. In my particular case, I had very little explicit memory, and I wanted it, but I didn't force it. And I rely on the bit of fragmented memory that I have, and I rely on the way uh, my body responds in many different situations. And I, I rely on the triggers that would take me out of the present into a place that I didn't recognize and the terror, the fear, the doom that I would experience. But I didn't have those kind of explicit memories. And, and although I, I thought that in order to be a certified, you know, person who actually uh, had experienced this trauma that I should have them. I gradually mm. discovered over time that that wasn't necessary, that what I had to do was to cope with the triggers to explore them in the present day, if not in the past, and learn how to, to manage them and to, to, to walk through the fear, walk through the doom, uh, walk through the terror, and come out on the other side. Yeah, so, so to your credit, uh, you didn't find it necessary at the end to have a very uh, well-established, coherent storyline. I, I did Which I think most of us want to have a story that to explain I, ourselves. I, and in your case, you had a kind of outline of a story more than the story itself. You're giving me credit for that, but the reality is I wanted that, but I never got it. Well, no, but I think you made peace with it. I made peace saying, with eventually. that. I made peace with that because I healed. The moral of the story is that we, we work with our bodies and our minds uh, to heal all that needs to be healed. And if we never come up with the full storyline, there's still a story. And I have, I can prove that because I've written this book, <laughs> which is a story, you know? And I think it's a pretty coherent and cohesive story. It's just that I don't have, I can't tell you every little bit of what happened to me. I can, but I can tell you some of what happened to me. And, and I have fleshed around it, the experience of, of how I managed it and coped with it and came to the other side. And what's remarkable about the book is, you know, there's not very much about even the fragments. It's just a little bit, and it's toward, I guess, the last quarter of the book. But you really describe the process 
of what it's like to recognize that you were falling apart or the word you use, I guess, is decompensation, but I think that's a fancy word for falling apart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, but you, and you talk about the, the recovery process and the therapy process, and, and, uh, both you know, during sessions and in between sessions, you really give a very vivid sense of what that felt like. Yes. Yeah, I, you didn't have a question in there, so I, I don't uh, my, have... my questions aren't always questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, I'm trying to take myself back there. I'm dissociating a little bit here, but uh, or my mind's wandering. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, I found that that developing the story around what I knew instead of trying to pull pieces that I really wasn't sure of uh, was the way to tell this authentically. And the reality is that many people who have DID never fully understand their whole story. They understand parts of it, but not all of it. At one point, I uh, wrote a piece that that described that you may have a bird feeder in your yard, and you may never catch a look at any of those birds because of your schedule, because of when they come and when they go. But you know they've been there because of all the seed casings that you see on the ground. What a wonderful metaphor. And so that is what my story is. I I have a ground full of seed casings. And so I know that something, that many things happened. Uh, And I have some idea of what they are. But I, I don't have all the details. And that's okay because I know... I know that it happened because I can see those seed casings. You've taken lots of pictures of those seed casing uh, as, as they're scattered and making sense of whatever patterns you can find. And taking, taking pictures with words. Exactly. And uh, that, that, that's my medium. I've always been a good writer, but I had never attempted anything like a memoir. But as I revised 10 different times, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, it, mm-hmm. the, the story began to flush itself out. You know, again, we have amazing artists uh, who have DID, and we have amazing musicians, and we have amazing administrators. Uh, yeah, I was an administrator. Uh, I was a school principal. And uh, people who have great uh, skills. And I'm, I'm speaking especially of... I'm interacting a lot with very with people who are experiencing... DID in the way that I experienced it, which is extreme pain and decompensation, but also great skills. But I will also say that I, I know there's lots of folks who, who may be brilliant and creative people, but their their parts are not able to actually function in the world for a period of time because it is so incredibly painful. I can't even begin to describe the amount of psychic and body pain that we feel. There is a chaos when you don't know who you are. And also, I think, and you, I think, allude to this very strongly in the book, is that there's such an incredibly intense feeling of shame. Mm-hmm. It's difficult for anybody to function at the same time as feeling tremendous shame. It's such a debilitating emotion. It is, it is tremendously debilitating. So for your audience, to give a little bit of a taste of, of what DID is, my shame was focused in a part. Now, that doesn't mean that all my parts weren't feeling shame because I think they were, but I had a part called the devil 
who I experienced as an organ in the middle of my body that was pumping shame out into the far reaches of my body the same way that the heart pumps blood. And so the devil carried this tremendous shame. My therapist, when, when the devil came out, he was so so mean and miserable and and uh, hated everybody and he knew everybody hated him and you know and my therapist said welcome I'm so <laughs> glad you're here and I hope you'll come back again she said that for every one of you she answers. did she did and and she said you're safe now you're safe now and and so and she's it, really saying that not just to the part but to the whole yes she's saying it to all of us right to all of us to whoever's listening to, to me as a whole person who would walk into the office exactly. and to all the parts that were inside that were listening, you know, you're safe here. So, so over time, we learned the devil's story, but we also learned that the devil was really a small child, a really hurt, hurt child who then started to cry all the time. And I had other parts that would come out and rock the devil and soothe the devil. And that was part of the healing process was learning how to soothe myself, to take care of myself, to take care of my parts. And this this shame piece, I'm certain that I still carry shame with me, but I'm not really aware of it. I mean, I think we all carry some amount of shame. Right, but it's not. But no. the shame does not drive me anymore because because I learned how to how to parent that part of myself. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so the, the takeaway for people who listen, who, who don't have DID, is, is really if you are carrying shame or if you are carrying some kind of fear or, or some other really negative emotion or experience, that to learn how to take care of yourself, to parent yourself, we have to learn how to put ourselves first, which is not easy to do because I discovered that I wouldn't be any good <laughs> to my children or to anybody if I didn't take care of myself because I was, you haven't asked this question and we haven't mentioned it, but I carried suicidal ideation for most of that those 20 years and, and I attempted suicide once. And if I literally went crazy or if I ended my life, what good am I? So I had to take care of myself first. Now, not everybody is in as dire a situation as I was in, but all of us carry burdens uh, and all of us carry things that we don't tell the world about. We have to take care of that that part of us. We have to put ourselves first in those instances so that we can eventually come to the place of being able to give back and and, and to take care of others and to, to be a nurturer. Uh, in our lives. Right. So in, in, particularly for someone who's a, a mother and a teacher and a principal, I mean, you, there's so much in those roles of taking care of other people. Yes. That it would be very easy to forget oneself if you were motivated to forget yourself. And, and at, at some point you couldn't do that anymore. I, I, I couldn't do that anymore. And, and in fact, I would say I, I was very high achieving. Uh, and I think I was an excellent teacher and an excellent principal. And an excellent pastor. I, I, you didn't mention that. That's part of the uh, story too. I, but that mm-hmm. that came after integration. But I could not sustain it as a person who had not had DID could. Uh, and I was very aware of that, and I've had to come to terms with that too. That my ability to sustain that work 
was compromised by my inner life. And so it was wonderful moving from teacher to, to principal, but uh, I could only sustain that for a certain period of time. Then I went on to seminary and became a, uh, a pastor. And, you know, it's, right. it's, it, it takes a toll on us. <laughs> So I, I do want to talk about just one more theoretical concept before we sort of go back to your personal experience, and that's the concept of co-consciousness, mm. uh, which my understanding co-consciousness means that the parts or alters, parts of the personality are aware of each other. That's co-conscious, whereas if they're cut off from each other through amnesia, then that would be the opposite. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, in your book, you, you, you describe your own experience as pretty much co-conscious, that you didn't have parts that were totally unaware of, of the other, even though at any particular moment, one might be more dominant in how uh, that part of you related in, in, the, in the actual circumstance. Well, in truth, I did have parts that did not know about each other. Okay. I did. But... To be frank, I don't I don't understand it, Stuart. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but um, my amnesia came in in not knowing about each other. But I think I had a, a very strong core part who I thought of as me. Not everyone has a strong core part, but I did. Uh, and so the the other parts. Once I started decompensating, other parts would, would look in on it, but I didn't know anything about them. They didn't always know about each other. And so that's where I experienced it as chaos. I experienced as mind chaos, where I would have five, six, seven, eight, or more streams of thought going on in my head at the same time. And that, that's crazy making to have that happen because I'm thinking I'm me with all this yeah. craziness going on in it, my it head. It really raises the question of what do we even mean by I for a normal person, let alone yeah. someone with DID. I mean, all of us have different streams of self and different thought processes. And it's amazing that any of us think of ourselves as a unified person. And is there even such a thing? It's, it's really kind of a mind boggling question. It's a question that's taken up in philosophy as well as psychology. And I'm not a philosopher, but I want to say there is a possibility to have a unified person, but you have to do a heck of a lot of work. <laughs> because I still have parts, but they don't come out, it's because that's when my brain was formed. But they, they pretty much leave life up to me because they trust me and only come out now and then. But I have done so much inner work that I understand myself so well that I feel so very unified, even on the occasion when a part comes out. And I, I know that you're talking about something maybe beyond that. So often we don't know who we are because we haven't taken the time to go inwards and to really do some deep work. I mean, maybe uh, another way to put it is that feeling unified means accepting the multifacetedness of self. <laughs> That's right. I love and not, that. And not, I love and that. not yes. fighting it and, and owning it all. Exactly. Owning all of it, even the parts that feel shameful. You know, even exactly. the parts that want to feel vengeful, for instance, and devil-like. You know, that we all have that. And, you know, I think of personality development as a kind of layering of an onion. Yes. And that the childlike parts of ourselves are still there. They just get layered over. And maybe someone who has DID has done a better job than most at preserving the layers 
and being able to reaccess them later on. <laughs> and, and to recover from DID are required to go down and learn about them too. So right. it's, it's, it's really survival for us. We have to do that or, or we're not going to make it. Whereas other people can manage to go on using other kinds of coping strategies and mm. never have to go down there and, and, mm. and meet the different parts of themselves. Well, I want to launch now into some questions about your own life, which are a little bit sensitive questions, so please let me know if I'm going too far in some way. I think the assumption is that DID arises out of not just early trauma, but really terrifying early trauma. Yes. That, you know, so that happens over and over again. Happens over and over again in early childhood. I mean, yes. maybe pre-verbal. It can be in pre-verbal, yes. Um, and that, you know, w- without having yourself having episodic memories of such things happening... Uh, did you have to conclude that somehow your parents must have either engaged in or facilitated or abetted some kind of monstrous abuse? Oh, you're really pushing the envelope here. <laughs> yeah, well, I, and, and you no, answer okay. to, the extent, to the extent that you feel comfortable, obviously. That's okay. I will say to you what I think I've said in the book. I, I, I give all the evidence yeah. of the present day. Well, of course, not the present day now, but the present day of when this was happening to me as an adult as I was decompensating. After having attempted suicide, after having spent a 30-day hospital stay in a psychiatric hospital, and after coming to my parents, hoping, expecting for support. Exactly. And saying, you know, I don't remember anything, but but, but people tell me that that I have all the symptoms of having been hurt or abused. Can, can you think of anybody who might have hurt me? And right. instead of trying to to support me and envelop me with their warmth, uh, a big wall went up and I clearly crossed a red line. But I was a slow learner and I still thought they loved me and I still thought I, I, you weren't I ready. You weren't ready to give up on I them. wasn't ready to give up there. And um, after, you know, getting uh, <laughs> these newspaper articles from my father. Uh, yeah, uh, out of the blue in a sense. Yes, out I mean, of the so blue. So th- those are clues that there's something to defend, those are, those right? Are, those are the seed casings on the exactly, ground, you know. Exactly. And then after having been disowned by them, my husband, my ex-husband had had an affair. And so we divorced and they became best friends with him and they would have holidays with him and my children without me. So I have never accused anyone of anything. Yeah, and, and I think it's remarkable that in, in your book, you, you lay out the evidence, but you don't draw the conclusions. You let the reader do that. I, well, I do, because that's what I, I feel a deep sense of responsibility of truth and honesty. And, and I'm giving my truth of what I do remember and of my experience. And I'm not going beyond that. And so that's all that I can say. And I will let your listeners draw a, their own conclusions. I, I would also say that the, the center of my altar system is Rosie, who is a two to three year old little girl. And her MO was trust. And she would always climb up into his lap because she trusted him and she would get hurt. She gave the hurt to Nanny who took care of her. And Nanny, during my years of falling apart and putting myself back together, was always exhausted, always in pain, always carried all of this so that Rosie could climb back up into his lap again but she never told me who his was. 
She didn't tell me who he was. So I draw my own conclusions, but I am not going to accuse anybody of anything that I don't have. Right, and you, you really can't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. It could be someone else. Right. But I will say that I got absolutely no support right. from my parents in my healing journey. And when I would try to talk to my mom about even just cursory things about my therapy, I went to therapy, it's been helpful, da, da, da. She didn't want to hear it. She told me I had to stop it. Um, my father told me I had to stop my therapy. Um, so at the very least, there was incredible defensiveness, exactly. which, you know, where there's, where there's smoke, there's fire. And maybe they knew about something else that happened exactly. in and the that's family. Why, yeah. And that's why I framed the question as I did, that, you know, whether they engaged in a facilitator or abetted it, maybe it was the third one, maybe there was someone else in the mm -hmm. family that they were protecting. Mm -hmm. Who knows? Couldn't have been in my family. That's what they said. Couldn't have been our family. Well, that's also a clue to, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> right, know, the, the right. Denial is not a river in Egypt, right? In spite yeah. of that fact, and, and we were estranged for many, many years, um, I did see my father right before he died. And because my family, they were all atheists, they had no idea, and nobody had died. <laughs> you know, in the, we, were, we were very isolated, which is also a sign of an abusive family. You know, we were very inward and isolated, and nobody had died. And they didn't know what to do, and I was a student at seminary, so I was able to help with my bring in a pastor who would uh, lead that farewell uh, gathering. Mm -hmm. And my mother died two years later, and I I did spend a bit of time with her, and I uh, I did lead her officiate at her her memorial service, and and I I felt really good about that because I was healed by then. Before that, I was very cautious because I didn't know how much power they still ha had over me. They had a lot of power over me uh, when I was younger, and I, I didn't know how much they still had over me. But I was able to go back and find out that they didn't really hold any power over me other than the fact that they gave birth to me and that I was able to feel compassion for them. Uh, and I think there's a little compartmentalizing in that, mm -hmm. um, but I felt... I was able to draw on, and, and this was right about actually at the same time that I integrated, but I was able to draw on this deep compassion that I had for other people and for myself and know that they deserved it too, even regardless of whatever they did to me that I remembered and whatever they might have, might have done to me that I didn't remember, that they're human beings, and clearly they must have suffered too. But that doesn't mean that frankly, and this is a whole other topic you can invite me in when I write this book, uh, uh, it doesn't mean I have to forgive them in order to heal, but I can feel compassion for them. Yeah, this is maybe a s subtle distinction between forgiveness and letting go. You're able to exactly. you know, let go of your uh, whatever rage you might have had yeah. toward them at, at, at whatever point. Um, with the remaining time, let's talk a little bit about the therapy with Sonia. I mean, it sounds like she was an absolutely wonderful therapist for you. you. Give her a lot of credit. And from the way you describe it, she certainly does not sound like she was planting any kind of ideas, but she was um, relating to you with, with un unconditional positive regard, as, as they say, and that she was all accepting. And even the idea of having dissociative identities or multiple personalities, it sounds like that really came more from you. You asked for confirmation about the, the diagnosis, and she, she confirmed that for you. But... 
very different from a false memory syndrome where the therapist is, is, has a framework already in mind uh, and, and, and inculcating those beliefs in, in the, uh, the clients. It wasn't like that at all. It sounds like she was just extremely patient and accepting and warm and uh, really conveying the attitude that whatever you had to bring, she was going to listen and listen supportively. Yes, I, I agree with all that. I was very lucky <laughs> to find her accidentally. Um, I didn't, wasn't looking for a therapist who knew about this sort of thing. And it was really just um, accidental that I found her. But she was non-directive, or at least I experienced her as non-directive. Uh, she was psychoanalytically trained, and I'm not exactly sure what that means, but she really just listened <laughs> and she affirmed and she didn't affirm if I needed a reality check which enabled me to be able to trust her because she wasn't just going to affirm anything I said. Can you think of an example of that? Well, well, it, often it came when I start would start to take blame uh, for something. Uh, well, I did this wrong or I did that wrong or well, I really can't blame them for not liking me or... Right, so, she, know, so obviously she wasn't affirming your shaming of yourself. Yes, <laughs> she wasn't that's, affirming that's my shaming. That, well, that's right, and I hadn't really thought of it in that way. I, you'd have to give me more time to really think through more of those examples, but she did. Well, I, I can give you a big example. So she also led a, a, a group for people with, dis well, at that time it was MPD, multiple personality disorder, and I... It was really the most awful experience I've ever had in my life and the best experience because it's what healed me in the end, I think. Everybody in that room, but especially one person, I transferred onto. So a person whose name I gave as Sarah in the book, she was my father. Mm -hmm. You know, I experienced her as my father and I hated her. I hated her. And I would come back into my individual therapy and I would just tell Sonia all these awful things and I felt like I was being abused in that group and she wouldn't let me get away with it. She, but, but she listened, you know, she was there for me and, and helped me, allowed me to, to just spew it all out. But she'd say, she said, I think the reason why you hate Sarah is because she reminds you of you. And of course, that was like, really? That, you know, how dare you uh, that, say that I'm like Sarah? And so how dare you say that I'm like Sarah? So she wouldn't let me get away with that. And when I poured soda on Sarah's head, <laughs> I had to own that. And she, she, made me, she made me rectify that and would not allow me to do that again. Because she was also the group leader. She was the group leader. That's uh, right. Mm -hmm, That's right. Mm -hmm. So she was modeling for you a kind of uh, self-acceptance. You know, if you could adopt her attitude toward you, that, you, that exactly. would be going a yes. long way toward yes. your own healing. And she was modeling self-love, uh, you know, right, that exactly. if she could love these unlovable parts of me, myself, of me, then I could maybe learn how to love these unlovable parts of me. And to your listeners who can't imagine why I would pour soda on someone's head. That's a whole story in itself, and you have to read the book. <laughs> okay. We don't, we don't have to go there. Now, as part of healing of yourself and going through this journey of, what, a couple of decades of, of healing, something like that? Of healing I, I want to say it was, a, it, was a, it was a good 20 years, 20 years of my life. 
yeah. um, uh, 10 years of decompensating and 10 years of ah, reconstructing. Okay. And then part of the reconstructing at the end was also uh, healing the relationships with your own kids, yeah. your three kids, because obviously when you were, quote unquote, falling apart and then, and then realizing you needed to attend to your own mental health, you couldn't be there. You couldn't make them as high a priority as you might have otherwise. And I think it sounds like you've forgiven yourself for that, and, and maybe they have too. Yes. Well, I, that, that's the hardest part of the whole story. It really is, because there was nothing that I wanted in my life, and I can feel tears come to my eyes. There was nothing I wanted in my life more than my children and to be, to be happy and, and, and to, to, to love them and to provide them with this loving environment. And somehow it was providing them with the opposite of what I had had or something like that. But I authentically loved them with all my heart. But as I began to decompensate or fall apart, and as I began to dissociate more, I, I lost touch with them. I, I didn't feel like I was their mother anymore. And in reality, I learned later that the part of me who was such a wonderful mother disappeared because she knew that it was dangerous. She knew there were things that were going on in the family that would, that could hurt her. So I was left not knowing how to mother, not knowing, well, I did know how to mother. I mean, because I was co-conscious in that way, but I couldn't do it because the dissociation built this big wall between myself and my children. And the most heartbreaking part of it is, but maybe also the life-saving part of it, is that because I had DID, I knew it. It wasn't like I was being a bad mother because I didn't know how to be a bad mother. It was that I couldn't be the good mother that I knew I wanted to be. I wasn't capable of it. Or at least not the optimal mother, I guess you could say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I did really good things as a mother. Mm -hmm. I know I did, even during those awful, awful times. But I, I knew, and I, I could articulate this, that I have to abandon my children emotionally in order to save myself. You know, and I wonder how many uh, p people can be optimal parents while they're going through a nasty divorce with or without DID. Right, <laughs> you know? right. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time today. So uh, thank you so much for, for coming aboard, uh, delving in. My guest today, uh, Lynn Barrett, author, speaker, pastor, and retreat leader, talking with us about her recently published memoir entitled Crazy about her intense psychological journey in confronting and recovering from dissociative identity disorder, formerly called multiple personality disorder. And clearly with this book and with the organizations that you're involved in, you're really uh, doing a lot to provide hope for others with this disorder and even without this disorder and helping others to heal from trauma. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.